Hello, friends. Greg Kokel here on Stand to Reason. Uh, thank you for joining me. And I have uh, this is an open calls day or an open mic calls. That's not open calls. Open calls when you call me, but open mic calls or when I use calls you've sent in. And uh, and since I'm not on my regular schedule time, you can't call me right now. Uh, but I will use the open mic calls to chat with you about things people ask. And uh, the way this works is you can call, dial, uh, either go to our website, str.org, our homepage there, and under podcasts and live broadcasts, there's a, there's some prompts there that'll help you record your own question for us. And uh, you can also simply call 857-DIAL-STR, 857-DIAL-STR, which is 857-342-5787. And uh, then you could leave your question there. And uh, sooner or later, um, I will get to it. I have what, one, two, three, almost, well, four pages of calls here. And there's about five pages, five calls per page. So obviously, I'm not going to get to all of these. We'll do a couple of shows like this. But, um, and I try to do them in order if I can. Some some questions that come through, I just can't answer because I, I, I don't know how to answer it. I can't give you a good answer. So we're just going to have to bypass those. Um, but before I get to the open mic calls proper, I'm going to uh, <laughs> deal with a letter that was sent to me. I'm looking at my da- the date here. I can't believe it was August 19, 2014. I get these things and I put them in a file and I think, well, I'll get to them sometime and maybe talk about them on the air. And it's uh, actually, I'm not even going to mention the, the name of the people that were sending this about um, about uh, their uh, their their nephew and uh, who is having some concerns or was having concerns about Christianity. I don't know the ultimate end of it, but I sometimes will use uh, letters like this that lay out a number of issues that I think have broader appeal uh, to answer on the air, um, generally in a timely fashion, not so in this case, but uh, for the benefit of the person writing and also for the benefit of those listening. And here there's actually nine different concerns that were raised by the young man who's high school age um, as he is thinking about Christianity and and challenging and doubting the legitimacy for the particular reasons that are um, expressed in the questions that he raises. And these questions are the kind of thing that um, come up with some frequency— in one form or another. So I thought I'd just kind of run down through these. We, I don't know how much long time will take. Maybe we'll take a half hour. Maybe we'll take 40 minutes. Maybe we'll take the whole hour with them. But um, each deserves some attention, and I think each um, is something that um, many of you are, would, would like to hear the answer for. So I'm going to start with that today and pick up with uh, the remainder of the time with uh, my open mic calls. So... Um, um this young man has questions and um when he was asked what questions do you have about Christianity he said well I could go on forever uh but um his biggest question is and this is going to be the first one how do we know Christianity is true now I could probably take an hour talking about that but I'd like to speak of it in a summary fashion, uh, 
just to give you a handle on how I would approach this. And there are two elements of this. Um, one element is about Jesus. The other one is the nature of the Christian worldview as it uh, reflects the nature of reality. Okay? So, um, on the one hand, I think it's fair to say, I think that Christianity is true because Jesus said it was. Okay? Or rather, he said he was the truth, and he also said that God's Word is truth, and he came to bear witness to the truth, all right? Now, of course, these are things in the Bible. Yeah. Okay, well, what if I don't believe the Bible? In what sense don't you believe the Bible? Well, I don't believe necessarily it's from God, okay? You don't need to believe it was from God in order to take the Bible's comments as the statements of Jesus describing the world, for one, and also describing details about himself. Now, this goes a little bit to the question of the reliability, of, specifically of the Gospels, as evidence of the things Jesus actually said. Now, I can't get into a whole lot of detail about that particular thing right now, but um, I will say this, and I've written about this in the story of reality, that there are very powerful reasons to take the gospel seriously as an accurate record of the life of Jesus of Nazareth. Okay? Uh, J. Warner Wallace has written a book um, called Cold Case Christianity, using his detective skills to analyze the gospels before he became a Christian, when he was an atheist, and it was convinced that you could trust the testimony about Jesus found there, but so have a whole bunch of other people, including critics like Bart Ehrman, who used to be a Christian and now he's a hostile critic of Christianity, yet still believes that the broad details of the life of Jesus are reliable. Now, he takes exception with a number of things, fine, but uh, when the Gospels are assessed by, um, by the canons of historical analysis, they come up with very, very high marks as being reliable for a number of reasons that do represent the canons. And, uh, for example, <clears throat> you have multiple sources that are early that uh, corroborate each other, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and not just them, but you have other 17 other ancient sources that are non-biblical that also corroborate details in the Gospels. Uh, you also have embarrassing details that are recorded there, and these aren't the kind of things that people would make up about themselves uh, if they're simply if they're falsifying a document. So um, it, there's and there's a whole bunch of those, and I could go into detail, but I'm just giving you some of the criterion that are used, criteria, that are used by historians to assess the, the historical reliability of the documents. So given that they have high standards, and there are a number of historians that will not accept the uh, supernatural aspects of it, okay, that would be fair to ask why, when they do accept all the rest, and it strikes me that there is a a predisposition to reject supernatural, rather than simply assessing the document itself to see if those claims about things that are supernatural are believe, believable on the merits, uh, regardless of one's contrary philosophy. And this is the argument, frankly, <clears throat> for the resurrection. 
because you have certain things that virtually everybody agrees to that um, that are historical events that are not supernatural. Jesus' death on a cross and buried in a tomb, the empty tomb, the claims of disciples about having seen what they thought was Jesus, and the transformation of someone like Saul of Tarsus, who is a radical critic of Christianity, even participating in the execution of Christians. Okay, none of those are supernatural, and these are all acknowledged by historians as being totally reliable details uh, buried in the the tomb. The tomb was empty. Did I mention that? The tomb was empty, so he's executed, buried, then the tomb is empty, then the disciples have this experience, and then Saul of Tarsus is has this radical change of thinking. So these are not supernatural events. These are just facts. But from that, the question is, what is the best explanation for each of those details? And using this minimal facts approach, it seems like the best explanation is the explanation that the disciples gave to their peril, and that is this one who was dead is now alive. Okay, so that, in a nutshell, is an argument for the truth of Christianity based on—not on the divine authority of Scripture, but on the general historical reliability of the Gospels, looking at the person of Jesus of Nazareth, who is displayed there, and the way he understood the world— and what he said about God and salvation, and then the evidence from non-supernatural events that lead us to the conclusion, since naturalistic explanations for these events are not plausible, the conclusion that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And if he rose from the dead, <clears throat> that that puts his all of his teaching uh, in a different light, has a greater authority, it seems to me. Interestingly, as most people think that his teaching does have authority, except for it touches, when it touches on things they don't believe. So one of the reasons I think that Christianity is true is because of Jesus. Jesus said it was, and Jesus, for the reasons I gave you, has credibility. There's another reason that I think it's true, and you've heard many have heard me say this before, and it's that the Christian worldview, taken as a whole, the picture of reality that is described there in the Scripture, uh, God, man, Jesus, uh, issues of, of the nature of morality and all kinds of things, that it, it, these things seem to match up. When the Scripture starts out, or story starts out, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that indicates that the universe came into existence at a moment in the past. Well, that is validated by Big Bang cosmology. A lot of Christians are not comfortable with that for reasons of dating the age of the universe, but nevertheless, this is what secularists seem to have demonstrated, and that fits perfectly with our story. So there is a point of verification between the claim of the Christian worldview and the way the world actually is. And, um, and there are other, the, de- the world looks designed— even Richard Dawkins acknowledges that in his Blind Watchmaker introduction, or the first couple lines of 
the opening chapter, the biological world is a complex realm that gives the appearance, at least, of having been designed for a purpose. Now, he denies that's what happened. He thinks the blind watchmaker of natural selection and mutation, Darwinian evolution, can account for the appearance of design. But notice that he acknowledges that it looks designed. Well, maybe it looks designed because it is designed. So our belief that there was a designer certainly comports with the way the world actually is. And when you have a belief that fits the way the world appears to be, that's evidence that your belief is actually true. And uh, we have morality. We all—it doesn't matter where you lived or when you lived, you believe something's wrong with the world. And the thing that's wrong with the world is morally wrong, and it seems like human beings have something to do with that. Okay, well, that's got to be factored into your worldview. And, of course, the Christian worldview, that's the problem of evil. And the Christian worldview is all about the problem of evil. There would be no Christianity without the problem of evil, because Christianity is an explanation of a way that the problem of evil is resolved. And especially given that evil people are responsible for the problem of evil, then God is dealing with the evil people first— before he deals with the impact of evil people on the world. Okay, so um, my point here is, gee, the idea that human beings, that there is a problem of evil, that's common sense. That human beings are a part of it, that's common sense. That means that they would have to be evil themselves, which is common sense in some measure. They do evil. We all do evil. We all know this. So these are all common sense facts that line up facts that are important features of reality that line up with the Christian worldview. And every time your claim about the world matches up with the way the world is, that's another point of truth. And when you add more and more of these things up, then you have more and more confidence that the worldview taken as a whole is accurate. And uh, I, I mentioned the brokenness of human beings, that's common sense, but there's also the beauty of human beings, which, by the way, is also common sense. We are not just creatures, cosmic junk, the results of mere accident, but there's something transcendent and beautiful and noble about human beings. We are broken, but we're beautiful as well. Uh, Francis Schaeffer called it dignity and cruelty as features of humanity that need to be accounted for in a worldview. So, with regards to this challenge, how do we know Christianity is true? I've offered two avenues to answer that question, and each avenue has some details that I've offered. One avenue is, well, Jesus said it was, and we have good reason to believe that Jesus got it right. Another avenue is, just take the broad perspectives of the Christian worldview, the broad strokes, so to speak, and then we'll see um, how they match up with reality. And it seems like a whole lot of things match up with the way the world actually is. That commends the general Christian worldview, as opposed to some opposite view or competing view, like atheism or Hinduism or Buddhism or something like that that commends the, the Christian worldview as being true and accurate. So there's a start. It's a way to go about answering that question. Here's the second. He wants to know if any religion can be proven, namely Christianity. Now, of course, this question is akin to the first. If I have given good reasons why Christianity is true, then it is the case that something could be said that's, that, that's reliable 
for the Christian understanding of reality. Uh, the, the, the difficult word here, of course, is proven, and it, it, it depends entirely on what you mean by that word. It's an awkward word because it's just thrown out without qualification oftentimes, and, um, and if it's not qualified, oftentimes when a Christian gives lots of evidence for his view, proof, if you will, that it's just dismissed as not proof. It doesn't rise to this standard, whichever standard is in the mind of the critic. So this is why it has to be qualified, because there are different standards of truth. There's apodictic truth, highest standard. That means it's not possible for it to be mistaken. All right? So it is like, whoa, it's like, I think, therefore I am. All right? That's pretty straightforward. If you're a, th- if you're a thinking something, then you're a something. <laughs> Because uh, thoughts uh, are had by things, and that's Descartes, famously, cogito ergo sum. But that's pretty straightforward, hard to deny that, okay? I exist. Uh, but most things don't rise to apodictic truth level. Um, then you have beyond a reasonable doubt. That's the high standard for criminal trials in this country, <clears throat> and it's such a high standard that we feel justified when the standard is met to execute people who have committed a crime established by that standard that uh, is a capital crime. All right, so that means that that's pretty high. Then you have preponderance of evidence, that's 51%. It's more for than against, basically. All right, that's another standard of truth. And it seems if you have more evidence for one view, rather than for another view, then you are in, you're in intellectually obligated to believe the one that is most reasonable, most likely, and not believe the one that's least likely. So that's another standard of proof. So which one do you have in mind? Now, I, I don't think apodictic truth is is uh, is is a, a standard that's appropriate to apply to these kinds of questions, because um, if you ask, is it possible I could be mistaken on a bunch of these details? Well, many of them, it is certainly possible I could be mistaken. Okay, I can't be mistaken about my own existence because I'm aware of my own existence directly, and awareness entails the notion of existence. This is, I think, therefore I am. But on most of the details— of the Christian worldview. These are defeasible. It's possible to show them to be false in principle. They're falsifiable. And so it's not going to rise to that level of truth. Now, beyond a reasonable doubt, I think that definitely can be the case, but a lot depends on the individual who's doubting. Because for some people, one level of evidence will be enough to take away any reasonable doubts but for other people it won't be enough. But I think that Christianity certainly falls into that category of proof. Absolutely uh, preponderance of evidence. It is much more likely, in my mind at least, that Christianity is true than it's false. All right? Or I'll say I wouldn't be a Christian. So, um, So given those standards of proof, what I offered a few moments ago to the question, how do we know Christianity is true, was my attempt to give the kinds of evidence that might raise one's confidence level at least to preponderance of evidence 
and if they examine more closely, maybe beyond a reasonable doubt, but certainly not in, uh, indubitable or apodictic truth that couldn't be denied or doubted. Okay, so there's, there's, the, there's the second question. I answered that by clarifying what it might mean to be proven, and then I referred back to my first, the first question and the evidence I gave why I think Christianity is true. Okay, here's the third. He is confused about the opposing views of biblical translation, and then the writer says, I think he's referring to denominations believing different things. Okay, now, in some ways, this is very easy to answer. In some ways, it's difficult to answer. And it's easy to answer because um, knowledge uh, is—how do I want to put this? In some cases, it's a complicated thing. Some things are easy to know. Some things are harder to know. And the more complicated and and especially weighty the issue is— the more you're going to have differences of opinion. But this isn't true just in in religion. I, I remember uh, in my radio debate in Amy Hall. She was there with me, giving me moral support that day when I had a three-hour radio debate with Michael Shermer, the American atheist, and he's the uh, publisher of Skeptic Magazine, etc. And, uh, and it was—do you remember, Amy? It was pouring, pouring, pouring rain that day. It was coming like— in sheets, and there I was in the parking lot with you. We were praying, and I was looking over my notes, getting ready for my encounter with Michael Shermer. But during that debate, Michael Shermer raised an issue, and the issue was it was that there's a whole lot of people who disagree with you, and there's a lot of people who have very strong convictions contrary to your convictions. Okay, and um, of course, he's t- he, what he's trying to do is undermine the uh, confidence he thinks it's justified to have in a point of view, in this case, my point of view about God and Christianity, because there are contrary points of view, points of view held by other people. Um, The problem is, and this is what I pointed out quickly, simply by saying, well, that's a good argument against science. (laughs) Because in science, you have all kinds of contrary points of view, about the best explanation given the facts. And in fact, there's a lot of dispute about what the facts themselves are in science. Now, I think that it certainly is possible to come to conclusions about the natural world that are well justified given the evidence. So, And so does Michael, obviously. Part of his testimony is, I used to believe in God, now I believe in science. But if contrary views are to be taken as justification for agnosticism about some field, like religion, then it should also apply to the field of science. No, it gets down to the particulars. You have to look at what the claims of particular people are in either field, science or religion, and see what the justification is for those claims. And, of course, you're going to have differences of opinion. Now, people make up their own decisions, but in every field, you have differences of opinion. I have a master's degree in philosophy, and guess what? Philosophers don't all agree, and they tend to be, I think, the more careful thinkers 
and have the tools to do thinking better, yet there's a massive amount of disagreement. So does that somehow nullify the the field, or does it nullify beliefs that different people have just because there are different beliefs? Does it justify us being agnostic about everything because there's such a variety of beliefs? No. Denominations of Christianity are distinguished by generally by small, smaller, um, tertiary, sometimes secondary uh, differences, uh, or I should say, ish, differences on issues that are uh, secondary, tertiary, of secondary, tertiary importance. I'll get this out eventually. There we go. Um, not primary, because if they differed, if Christians differed on core primary foundational items, they wouldn't be called Christians. They would be called Mormons, or they'd be called Jehovah's Witnesses, or Christian scientists, or Muslims, or New Agers, or something else. Notice I'm not taking sides on who's right in that group. I'm just simply pointing out that groups are distinctive based on shared convictions, and that's what makes them the group. And if they deviate from those shared convictions, they become part of a different group. Christians hold a certain set of things, uh, at least tacitly, as true. Now, sometimes, even though they hold them tacitly as true or in confession, they, they confess these things to be the case. They, they don't always live them out. But nevertheless, there's this foundational thing. And so when it comes to secondary and tertiary things, what would do you, when you baptize, do you immerse when you're a Baptist? Do you sprinkle? Well, you're a Lutheran. Now, those aren't the only distinctives between those two groups, but notice that they are distinctives that are somewhat, you know, in the big picture, inconsequential. They can't both be right. They're making competing claims, but this is people have different opinions because they they read the facts differently. In this case, the scripture. Uh, why should that be unusual? Why should that be a reason to um, question or doubt the whole enterprise? Okay, the opposing views of. Vi- biblical translation. Now, um, this was qualified as different denominations, but translations differ principally because <clears throat> the, the times differ. So a translation that is from the uh, original languages, like Hebrew in the Old Testament or Greek in the New Testament, that's translated 300 years ago, is going to read into English, is going to read in the English different than it than English is now because English has changed, and so when Jesus says "Suffer the children to come unto me" in the King James, he doesn't mean you know hurt the kids so they feel suffering. The word there means to allow. So in a more modern translation, to avoid confusion, we use the 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 word now that get, captures the meaning of the Greek word. So we don't say "suffer," we say "allow." All that means is that language has changed, and the newer translations just capture, <clears throat> excuse me, the the most updated word that is appropriate for that original word. Now, of course, sometimes there is a discovery of 
manuscripts that allow them to fine-tune things a little bit. But those differences between these manuscripts and therefore the translations are going to be very modest, uh, that is, with, without any real theological effect or substance, given the big picture. So sometimes there's just, you know, differences in translations, and here's the reason why. Language changes. Or there's new manuscripts that are found of ancient um, copies of the uh, of the uh, of the of the scriptures, and they have to be translated. And there might be some little variations, but this isn't a very big deal. So if you're thinking about denominations or translations, <clears throat> both of those are completely understandable given the nature of those tasks. Um, it isn't required that everybody agree in a discipline for you to trust any of the details of that discipline. If it were, then science would be completely untrustworthy. All right. Now, here's another one that comes up with some frequency, and uh, that is he is confused on seven days of creation and how that fits in with science. Well, I'll just just say that there are lots of ways that people have tried to fit that in with the scientific understandings that we have. Um, Those ways of understanding the seven days of creation are called concordist views. In other words, they're trying to match up the seven days somehow with our knowledge of ancient scientific knowledge of ancient history, all right? And those concordists fall into two groups, either Young Earth Concordus or Old Earth Concordus. So both, they differ on their understanding of the age of the universe, but each are trying to um, draw from scientific evidence to support their understanding of either an Old Earth or a Young Earth and the particulars of the seven days of creation. There's another alternative, and that is that this the the seven the, the Genesis one and two and that first portion of it, these were not to be understood in a concordist way at all. They weren't trying to make the days match some kind of physicalistic explanation of what took place, but rather there is a pattern that's there that's somewhat poetic, but still meant to communicate some literal truth in reality. Okay, and that's another way of looking at it. My point being is there are lots of options here that seem to be completely consistent with um, a high view of Scripture and also the truth of Christianity. So you don't have to think, well, I don't know if Christianity is true because of the seven days of creation. Well, there are different ways to understand that, that I think are legitimate. All right. Now, I happen to be an old earth person myself, that is, I think the—and I'm not sure about the concordus, like Hugh Ross does an Old Earth concordism, uh, and here's the different things that are happening, very convincing, by the way, his view, reasons to believe. Yet I, I think there's some other things that may be going on, maybe multiple things that are going on. There's clearly the account gives the responsibility for the existence of the world to God, and that the the particulars in the world he created are not other gods. Like the sun and the moon, they don't have names. They have functions. They're just things. This is part of what was meant to be communicated there. So regardless of what way you approach it, the creation days, uh, it's still clear God made everything, and the universe is not divine, the way many pagans think, but God is the one in charge of it. 
So, uh, so there are lots of options that um, should be that that it would be helpful if you were open to. Um, the reason I'm stuttering here is because I, my suspicion is that when sometimes when people think about becoming Christians, they are um, they feel that they're stuck with young Earth creationism, which to them is completely untenable. And therefore, they can't buy the whole package because this part, which seems essential in some people's minds, is unbelievable. So the rest of the package is unbelievable. And um, just making the point that it ain't necessarily so. Actually, I don't think it is so at all, young earth creationism. And I'm a committed follower of Jesus of Nazareth. So there's some thoughts on seven day of creation. Um, <clears throat> let's see. The next thing is... oh. I, this concern about blind faith. He refers to faith as blind faith. Okay, now, as you notice, some of these questions are related to each other. If the question is, how do we know Christianity is true, and can any religion, including Christianity, be proven at some level of proof, um, that's an appeal for a reasons or evidence for the claims. Now, if there is an appeal for evidence that is met with evidence, whether it's adequate or not is another question. But if it's met with evidence, and this is what Christians who know something about these things, like apologists and others who are students of apologists, they can offer, then their faith isn't blind because they have reasons. It's not a leap of faith, but it's a step of trust based on certain reasons or evidence, based on a certain rationale. Um, the Bible does not teach a leap of faith. This is a, a, a this is both a libel that is spoken by atheists about faith, and I say libel because it's a lie. It's a mischaracterization of what Christianity teaches and has ever taught, even though there are some Christians who are confused. Many Christians think that faith is a leap, and that's what the language—well, you just got to take it on faith. You just got to take a leap of faith. But why? That's the fair question to ask. And if the why can be answered, then it's not a leap of faith. Okay? It's not blind faith. It is intelligent trust. You take a step of intelligent trust because there are good reasons to trust the claims that are made about the thing you're trusting in. All right? Not blind faith. Now, I say libel by atheists because atheists ought to know better, because a lot of these atheists, especially the ones I'm thinking of, are lettered atheists. That means they've been around the block a few times, they have degrees, they know the difference, but they still make the claim. Peter Bogosian's a good example. He says, uh, late of Portland State University, and he says, if you have evidence, then it's not faith. Well, if you want to define faith that way for your own purposes, fine, but we're not talking about your purposes, Peter, Dr. Bogosian. We're talking about what Christians believe and what Christians teach and what Christianity holds. 
Now, it may be that some Christians do take a leap of faith. I'm, there's a lot of them who, I think, mischaracterize the Bible in that regard. That's what it's all about. We walk by faith and not by sight. I just saw this recently. When Paul says, we, and he says it a couple times, we walk by faith and not by sight, he means that we're not walking by sight. We don't see it empirically with our eyeballs. He's not saying we have no reason to believe it. Paul, of all people, when he went to uh, the Areopagus and what, Acts 17 or thereabouts, and he finishes his famous um, sermon regarding the unknown God with the line, having supplied proof regarding Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's evidence. That's not blind faith. Now, they scoffed at that. Most of them did, because they didn't believe in resurrections. That seemed like idiotic to them. But it was not blind faith that was being appealed to. There were reasons that were given, and the the New Testament is chock full of statements like that. So is the Old Testament, for that matter. You know, many convincing proofs, says in Acts chapter 1. He appeared to his apostles with many convincing proofs. Paul, it says there in, in Acts 17, he was meeting with others, as was his custom, reasoning with them. Now, it says from the Scriptures, because in this case he was reasoning with Jews from the Old Testament Scriptures. But notice that reason is involved. There is no appeal to blind faith. Think of the reason that John wrote the Gospel of John. It's in John chapter 20. And the reason he wrote John the Gospel is to give evidence for belief. What John says is many other signs and wonders, that's miracles, Jesus performed that have not been included in this volume, in this writing, this book. In other words, I didn't tell you everything that Jesus did, all right? In fact, later in the chapter, he says, um, if I would have recorded everything that Jesus did, it would fill all the books of the world. So he's, he's, uh, he's, he's saying, you know, with ag- exaggerating for the sake of effect. Wow, still, but you know what? I have included seven miracles in this book, the Gospel of John. These have been included, he says, in order that you might believe. Many other signs and wonders Jesus performed that are not included in this book, but these have been included in order that you might believe. Here is the evidence, so you'll have faith. What Believe what? That Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's two different things. The Rescuer, who is God come down, and in believing, have life in his name. What kind of life? Eternal life. So there's John. I wrote the whole Gospel of John. He's saying to give evidence to believe, not to make a blind leap of faith. And incidentally, this verse comes right after the incident with Doubting Thomas, which helps explain, at least in part, what that passage does not teach. Because Jesus said, blessed are those who have not seen and believe. And many people read that, blessed are those who have no reasons, who have no evidence. They just have blind faith, 
But that's not what Jesus said. He said, who haven't seen? Now, the apostles told Thomas they had seen Jesus. That's eyewitness testimony to Thomas, who had also seen Jesus in his earthly ministry, heal the sick, you know, give sight to the blind, uh, cast out demons, and raise the dead. He'd seen all of that firsthand. Now, when Jesus is executed and his friends all say, Jesus rose from the dead, and we've seen him, he wouldn't believe them. He wouldn't believe the adequate testimony he had before him. He said, I have to see with my own eyeballs, stick my finger in the wounds. And so Jesus shows up and says, okay, here you go, here are the wounds. And then chastises Thomas, essentially saying, that's a bit much, Thomas. You demanded to see with the eyes what the, your brothers, the other disciples, gave you was adequate testimony, and you had enough information, you, you shouldn't have made that kind of excessive demand. So, not even—and the next verse, then, of course, John says, the reason I wrote this book is to give you evidence that you would believe. So, if, if Jesus is advocating blind faith in that verse, then the very next verse contradicts it. So I've given you a way to show to see the harmony between those passages. Okay, um, so no blind faith in the Bible. That is a mischaracterization of the text, and when critics do that, it's called a straw man. You are mischaracterizing our view, you and you make it easy to knock down the mischaracterization. You beat up a scarecrow. That's all you've done. You've refuted a view that we don't hold. And if you want to refute a view regarding Christianity, it better be our view, not your distortion of it. Right? Okay, what's the next issue on his mind? Um, he's confused about how the books of the Bible were decided to be true. Okay, let me give you a short, uh, a short study on that. Um, and it, it, it's a, a little bit of a herky-jerky process that took about two centuries to get really nailed down. Um, but one one thing that happened, but here, here's the way it started. Jesus had disciples who he trained, and he had his earthly ministry that he trained them in, and there was another disciple that he trained after his resurrection, and that disciple is Saul of Tarsus. So Saul had a, uh, a, a an encounter with Jesus on the road to Damascus, the resurrected Christ, and then according to his own testimony in Galatians chapter 1, he was actually taught by Christ himself for a period of time, and then he took the message that he got from what he was convinced was Jesus and took it to the pillars, Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem, and they affirmed that he got it right. So here are this group of people that have been taught by Jesus and then are passing this information on. The new Christians are looking to all of these apostles as speaking authoritatively for God. And if there was an apostle preaching, then what the apostle said was true, because he was the one that was taught by Jesus. So you have apostolic authority. Now, by the way, for my point here, it doesn't matter whether you agree with the Bible or anything. What I'm, I'm just trying to help you see how the authority of the apostles— 
trained by Jesus, the people understood that, was transferred then to a set of books. Okay? That's the process, because that's the question. Whether or not the Bible is the Word of God is another issue. I'm just, just making this point. Now, so after Jesus left, if the apostles taught it, and this is especially a case with Paul, and he was the one who wrote most of the letters, most of the volume of the New Testament comes from Luke because he's got a whole gospel, and he's got the whole book of Acts, which is the history of the early church, so he's got more word count. <laughs> but um, the the books, the, the greatest number of books come from the pen of Paul. But Paul was acknowledged by everyone, including the Matthew, Mar- I'm sorry, um, Peter, James, and John, the pillars there in Jerusalem, to be God's spokesman. So the things that he wrote had authority. So what is the word for authority that we use? This is the authoritative speaking. That word is called canon, C-A-N-O-N. Okay, so the canon was, that is the authoritative preaching for the church that the church recognized universally was those people trained by Jesus. Well, how do they get trained by those people? Well, sometimes those people talk to them, but most of the time those people wrote something down. So if those apostles wrote something down that that was doctrinal, then given that they're the authoritative speakers, whether they say it or write it doesn't matter, it's still authoritative. So the books written by those who had apostolic authority, and that was gained either by the apostle himself writing, like John or Peter or Paul, or those who were with the apostles, that would be Luke, with, with uh, Paul much, much of the time in the book of Acts, and also researching eyewitness details for his gospel, and drawing in some measure on Mark, who was the amanuensis, the writer for Peter, according to, is it Eusebius who said that? In any event, so we have this connectedness. And then we also have those who were the disciples of the apostles who were writing authoritatively, who in their own writings reflected the the same teaching. So, in other words, the apostles got this stuff from Jesus that they wrote down, and then they trained their own disciples in the same stuff, and the disciples acknowledged that, yeah, this is what we got. And so you have this succession. J. Warner Wallace calls it the chain of custody, this information that's passing from generation to generation, which is the same citing these different letters and books. So this you see the practical formation of the canon, because it isn't like a bunch of people got together and said, okay, here are the books. What ended up happening is you, you have a heretic named Marcion in the first century, who, or the, uh, the beginning of the second century, who starts preaching false doctrine and tossing out a bunch of books that don't agree with his doctrine. And that's when the Christians said, okay, wait a minute, now we've got to make a more official statement. Here's the books that were written by apostles that Jesus taught that bear the truth. And slowly the canon formed in that way. And apostolic authority was one of the most important criterion, okay? 
Um, and there were other criterion, but uh, or other criteria, and uh, but but that was the most important one. So it wasn't just like people would just willy nilly picked books that they liked. Rather, they were tied to authoritative sources as having been recognized by the early church coming from the from the from from the apostles. Now, there are a bunch of other stuff that was written they knew wasn't from an apostle, and it was written too late to be an eyewitness. It was crazy. Gospel of Thomas, for example. It's way too late to be written by the gospel by Thomas himself and in other other documents. These are pseudepigrapha. These are false writings that were just rejected out of hand uh, by the church. So there you have um, a kind of a, a model way of understanding the broad process of canonization. Like I said, it was herky-jerky, and uh, there were some things some people weren't sure about, and other people seemed to be sure about, and then they worked it out. But they, the canon slowly got formed um, through that process, and there was largely agreement on it uh, by, at least practical agreement, by on the books that were were part of the official record of authoritative, God-inspired writings by the by the mid second century so um next i'm I'm looking at my clock here I got about six minutes and I got three more questions. Here's the next one, number seven. We talked at length about his question of God being perfect yet making an imperfect being, okay, so this is a misunderstanding it's easy to resolve um of course something some things depend on what you mean by perfect and imperfect. When God made humans, they were just right. They were exactly as he wanted them to be. Now, that doesn't mean they couldn't have gone bad, because part of what he wanted them to be was a creature with the ability to make choices that were morally significant. Now, why he did that is another question. But nevertheless, that's what he wanted, and that's what he said was good. It was just the way he wanted to be. It, it was perfect in the sense that there was no flaw in it, uh, because having moral freedom is not a flaw. It has disadvantages. There's a potential downside, but it's not a flaw, okay? Um, there was a reason why he did it that way, and so it isn't a, a, a liability on God's character because he made creatures who were capable of of disobeying, okay? Um, so he didn't make an imperfect be- being in humans. They were just the way they're supposed to be. Uh, but they were not. They were innocent, morally innocent, but they were not immutably innocent, all right? Uh, next one, quickly, um, that this questioner or skeptic has no personal theory on how something came from nothing, but he doesn't believe that it was that it was God necessarily. Okay, my point with that issue, as I discussed earlier, something coming from nothing, was not that God necessarily is the source of everything. Now, for my own, for, for, for my own money, so to speak, I think the smart money is on that fact. I mean, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't see how something can come from nothing. So there is nothing, which means there's no thing of any kind. There's not even cause and effect. And all of a sudden, bang, out of nowhere comes something. It just there appears. 
in this very, very interesting, highly complex way that the universe actually is when you consider the math and the physics, the astronomy and all that, and then things that subsequently came of that. This, this requires an explanation. Classically, it's been, why is something here rather than nothing here? Okay. Now, you could say, all right, um, no thing is responsible for it, or something is responsible. and That's the only two options. Love excluded middle. It's either A or non-A, all right? Um, and so I'm just asking the question, what's the odds on favorite? And by the way, if, if, if all this matter can pop into existence out of nothing, why don't we see lots of examples of that going on right now in our midst? All these things popping into existence out of nothing for no cause. It just doesn't happen. So it's unlikely that the universe happened that way. What is most likely is that there was a cause that was adequate to the effect of the universe. And when you start thinking about what kind of cause would be adequate, it would have to be something smart and powerful and, uh, you know, outside of the natural realm. And you can see I'm starting to move towards kind of the God thing. Now, I don't know what other options you are. And if you want to say, well, I'm agnostic about that, then you're welcome to that. But that strikes me that you haven't thought about it. And when you think about it, either something or no thing, the odds-on favorite is clearly something like the kind of God that we've been talking about. And if you just kind of shrug that off, well, not necessarily so. My response is, you're right, maybe not necessarily so. But what's most reasonable? Is there any well, the, there's no alternative that's more reasonable. Something from nothing is not more reasonable. It defies our universal experience, all right? And finally, um, he gets frustrated when something isn't able to be explained, that it gets defaulted back to God, that it must have been God explanation. I actually almost never see that. I don't know who he's talking to. Must have been God. Um it's not that, and maybe he's. This is a this is a God of the gaps kind of complaint, and when someone advances intelligent design, this is the charge against them. But it isn't like we haven't been able to explain it, so it must have been God. It's rather what we know about it defies a naturalistic explanation. Okay, look here. Here, here is this thing. I've got this long, skinny thing that's got a point on it, and when I move the point against paper, blue comes out, and it's got a 207 number on the side of it. Okay, now, what is the natural explanation for how this came to be? Well, there is no naturalist explanation. Oh, it's got a little button on the top. I can push it up and down, and that little pointy thing goes in and out. Now, I think that someone made this. Huh! That is a someone of the gaps. You just don't know how it happened accidentally, so you're just making a saying someone did it. No, it bears all the evidence of design. It's not. There's not a gap. There's not an explanatory gap. Someone did this. This took know-how to make, and only persons have know-how. Okay, and they know how to do it. And I am concluding from the evidence itself that this pen was made by someone, I am not defaulting to my ignorance in sticking someone in the gap. And the same thing is true with regards to God. 
We have the DNA double helix, right? We got four base pairs that, that spell out everything that happens, not just in the human body, but in every organism that's alive on the earth. All right. It's code. We know where code comes from. It comes from intelligent beings. It doesn't happen by itself. Code doesn't just pop into existence and then build things. This is a blueprint from which, which things, living things, biological things that are massively complex, are built. Okay. Gee, what could explain that? What naturalistic process? I don't know, so I'm just going to stick God in there and say God did it. Why are you saying God did it? Because it looks like someone did it. Code comes from intelligence. Design comes from intelligence. Teleology comes from intelligence. Goals are intentions of intelligence. It's not a God of the gaps. Well, there's a bevy of questions, hopefully adequately spoken to, if not completely. Nine. I'm only nine years late with this, too. Hope that is helpful to stimulate your thinking about the truth and legitimacy of the Christian worldview, Christian view of reality. I'm Greg Kogel. For Stand to Reason, give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.